You're listening to Dirty Feet, a dance podcast. I'm Alison Burns. For this episode of the Dirty Feet podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with Karen Kaja, who is an award-winning artist. She is a choreographer and dancer, as well as the co-artistic director of Kaja Dance, along with Alan Kaja, your husband. And uh, this is my favorite of your titles, Project Instigator. You definitely <laughs> get things started. Um, you have been uh, around for quite a while. You're Toronto-based. The company itself has been in existence for over 25 years. You have plenty of nominations and awards to mm-hmm. be able to brag about. Um, and you have performed in both theater settings and also institute projects um, and a lot of community engagement works. Mm. Uh, so we're going to get into a, a few of those facets of, of your um, background and career. Uh, thank you primarily uh, for joining me today, Karen. You're welcome. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> uh, I want to start with a kind of a big question, um, going through a bit of of. Uh, samples of your work I want to know is is dance all about relationships for you and is it by its very nature a sensual art form both absolutely I mean the sensuality of dance is what attracted me to the form one of the things one of the many things uh, sensual form of expression Um, and the nature of relationships is what absolutely intrigues me and drives me through my personal investigation choreographically. Beautiful. And it's very evident in, uh, in clips, video clips that you can easily access online of, of, of the work <laughs> that you've done over the years. Uh, I would like to know also why the title of your company is Keja de Dance. So it's d'apostrophe before dance. Where does that come from? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Well, when Alan and I were thinking about just playing with names of our company, um, well, I should back up even more because the the name Keja is a name that we created together. So I was born Resnick, and he was born Norris, and together we wanted to create our own name. And it had nothing to do with a company. We didn't have one yet, but uh, in honor of getting married and collaborating on that activity, (laughs) (laughs) we um, took letters from our first, middle, and last name and played around with them and came up with a couple of names and chose Keja. And then... When it was uh, time around 1990, when we were thinking about creating a a company and a name for the company, we were walking down the street one day and we were just playing with names. We play all the time, and I said, um, I said, what about Kasia dance? And and we laughed our heads off. And the reason that we were laughing is because his father um, came out of war-torn Europe and survived the Holocaust, and he had a stutter. And he would say, get your dinner, you know, get out of the house to get to school. And he would stutter. And so I just made this game up around the da-da-da-da. And basically, it stuck. Fantastic. Yeah. And the other thing is that um, my um, mom's family was born in Quebec. And my mom was born in Quebec. So in a way, it also sort of honored the de-dance aspect of my history. So it was a combination. And and speaking of 
the company um, and how it's been in existence for 25 years, uh, I see the the life... 27 now. Right, the life duets <laughs> as, a, as a project in celebration of this, is it not? Mm-hmm. So you've asked uh, up till now four different choreographers mm-hmm. to create duets on yourself and Alan, mm-hmm. including Benjamin Camino and Ted Robinson. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how you chose these choreographers to reflect mm-hmm. on your In the career? early 2000s, we made, uh, we commissioned our first two life duets, Claudia Moore and Mary Jose Chartsy, and we also created some of our own life duets and we toured them in different combinations to several different um, company uh, to several different product uh, presenters in different countries and we then let it lay and continued our own work and then we decided in honor of our 25th anniversary at that time that we would commission new life duets I I proposed that idea and we uh, we made it happen, and we chose the choreographers, um, people who we'd always wanted to work with, and we wanted a diversity uh, diversity of age. So we wanted someone who was up and coming and going to go for some real risk, and we wanted someone else who also spoke his own language, Ted, somebody that who was really embedded in. Uh, like a good wine, like really mm-hmm. deep deep down into um, his career. So, yeah. And then what um, parameters did you give these choreographers? Well, um, because they knew that we were uh, fluid with uh, improvising and with partnering and also with set work, we pretty much, you know, gave them the totality of that. And potentially something about Alan and I, because they're a duet for our lives to represent, to pull from, to articulate our lives. And so um, we knew Ben from a history of um, when he was a teenager, he got involved in something that we did. And Ted I've known over the years, and he choreographed on Cloud9, which I also run. It's another company that I run. He created a work for Cloud9, which is that company. And I I knew him, and... um, yeah, basically, it was just really easy to be in the studio with both of them, and they just harnessed who we were, and the parameters really were them and us. <laughs> Duetting appears to be a very big part of your practice. Um, the the work that we're going to be speaking about later that you're presenting here in Ottawa, Crave, mm-hmm. is a duet. Mm-hmm. You're also bringing a workshop about improvisation and, right. and dancing uh, partnering. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about what uh, your approach to working with a partner is and why it's different? Mm-hmm. I suppose part of that has to do with um, having a lifelong partnership and the ups and downs, the ins and outs, and my attention to other people's partnerships, um, my attention to relational aspects of two people in conversation um, through talking or nonverbal. So I'm always witnessing, watching um, people in relationship. Um, So did you want me to chat about Crave or about um, the practice of, of... duetting that we do in our teaching or I would love to hear about the teaching aspect and and what the vocabulary perhaps is Um, so there's two different things that go on in our teaching when Alan and I teach together we've honed our teaching over uh, 20 years Um, 
we developed a vocabulary together that keeps evolving. And at a certain point, I began to focus more on my own work. Um, and the kids, it's complex. The kids got older. I had to stay home, and I was focusing on my own creative work. And Alan continued some of the teaching, and I couldn't always go with him. And so he continued developing Kasia Elevations, which is comes out of our partnering, and it's basically harnessing uh, the support and the energy and throwing it to thrive, to use momentum. So we began the development of that and continued it, and he kept going further with that, while at the same time I began harnessing um, more subtle ways of partnering, I would say. And so together we've developed this system I mean, I say system, but it's very fluid and open, and we both have different focuses within it, but when we teach it together, um, there's a sensorial approach to warming up and partnering that we do together to bring ourselves into the room and present and embodied with each other. And then there's sort of the more technical aspects that, like, this is how you, like, work with your body to... Um, to elicit uh, motion going upward or throwing sideways or you know, um, going somewhere more specific or opening it up to improvisation. How's that for a very non-specific answer? Oh, I thought that was very precise. <laughs> I'm wondering if, if there's any other points where you can identify a difference because you do work with each other and you work with, with other performers mm -hmm. and in other artistic contexts mm -hmm. with and without each other. Mm -hmm. um, being working so closely with your partner, mm -hmm. pros, cons. I'm mm. sure it's an mm. age-old question you get frequently. It's a good one. <laughs> and it, it, we need another three hours. But um, I do work and dance for a lot of different people. Um, Alan works more as a choreographer and teacher. Um, and I work as choreographer, project instigator, and um, dancer. I consider myself a dancer first. But... Um, I'm not sure which aspect to answer first, but I'll start with one thing, and you can weave it into whatever else you want. I started dancing as a dancer, um, and I started, Alan and my relationship started very much in the exploration of contact and the language of that threshold, what that could offer. At that time, it was contact improvisation, and we didn't have we didn't have anything developed in our own interest, but then we began to do that. Um, and when he was creating work, because he, like, basically, as soon as he decided to go into dance, he knew he was going to be choreographing. That was not on my mind at all um, for me. So I ended up being more of his muse, like his language spoke through me, and the development of movement material often went through me and my body, and... I ended up creating a lot of my own solos um, within his work. And then I realized over, after like a decade of doing that, which I completely, completely loved, um, that what I had been doing was doing a lot of my own creation within his work. And so when I harnessed that and realized it, I went further with the development of my own work because I realized I'm already doing that, actually. So it was very fluid shift. And so working together <laughs> is um, ultimately fantastic.
We are each other's collaborators. We are each other's artistic advisors. We um, speak and breathe, you know, and blink with a knowing to mm. each other. So um, that is a rare commodity, I would imagine. You know, I can't, I mean, it. it is the way we are, but I don't sense that that's so much the way people are when they um, are married. And, I mean, we were married, we collaborate, we, I support his work, he supports my work, we have children together, we tour, they used to come with us all the time. We don't drag them with us anymore, <laughs> but <laughs> um, we, we veer into new directions and challenge each other. I'm very, you know, I, I, can, I would consider myself when I was his muse more than my own creator. I would challenge him a lot. Now I step outside of that role because I'm focused more on challenging my own direction and what I'm creating. So I allow myself to be uh, less of a challenge in his rehearsals, which <laughs> might be good. But then we spend time outside of rehearsals and talking about each other's work. He was in my work last year. It was called, um, two years ago, it was called Taxi. And it was the first time he had been in my work in 15 years, in my own creative work. Because um, I, he thrives on having the same dancers in his work over years and years and years, because he trains them with the Keja elevations, and he really likes to be able to harness a vocabulary from them. Even though there's improvisation as well, we would consider that way of working a certain vocabulary of improvisation. Um, and I like very much having new people to work with. I love new collaborators. And in the early parts of our company, I would bring in the new collaborators, and then he would hire them after he you know, watched how they were working with us. But we work with huge amounts of people as well. So yeah, anyway, now I'm not really answering your question, so. <laughs> well, well, it's it's leading me in, in the direction of uh, of speaking about Crave because Crave is an example where you are the the sole choreographer on the project, mm -hmm. and you're, you're working on t two dancers, mm -hmm. neither of whom are Alan. And I'm wondering, yeah. other than than it following this arc in your career, um, what about this work made it the right right to step away from a collaboration with Alan to create it? Um, well, I had been creating works prior to Crave um, that didn't involve Alan or weren't created in collaboration, which is a whole other thing when we collaborate. Um, but I was continuing to explore the parameters of partnerships. And as ours was evolving, uh, it inspired me to continue to dissect them. I don't think there'll ever be an end to that for me. But... Um, um, what I found with my uh, dancers that I'm working with, Michael Caldwell and Stephanie Tremblay-Abubo, um, they uh, are so present with me in the studio, and they're very gifted, and they gift me with um, going any direction I want. It's very, um, it's very inspiring. So within that duet, I began exploring uh, the hopes and dreams that we hang on to in a partnership when it's working, when it isn't. Um, and 
unbeknownst to me at that time, I was also exploring just in very simplistic form the concept of touch. I grew up dancing. I mean, really, I started dancing at 18, but in my dance life, uh, my growth was through the concept of touch because I fell in love with dance through contact dance, even though I, you know, studied technique and did all this other stuff. Um, and so my fascination with touch is uh, continues through that piece and beyond now into another piece coming up eventually. Yeah, so this one is from 2013, so it's yep. existed for a few years now. Yep. And other than uh, the Globe and Mail called it uh, one of your finest works, <laughs> what else can you tell us about uh, Crave and, and what makes it different than maybe other Keijo works? Well, it's certainly different than Alan's work. There's no, in my work, you won't see any Keja elevations. I don't actually choreograph with them. Um, I leave that vocabulary for him because it's not my personal interest. Um, my interest is the intricacies of uh, other dynamics in a relationship. Um, you, yeah, I mean, what what happens if we get too close, if we're not close enough, if we... Like, with Crave, I worked with writing vocabulary and memories and writing through the hand and what those, con what those meanderings were and then writing it through the body and writing it through the face and then writing it through the speech so that you can't uh, 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 e even say what what those memories are and so I traveled those memories through speech and through the page through the written word and through the body and there is no speaking in it um, in the end um, but um, yeah the concept of uh, trying to engage uh, in oneself and our own memories of being touched and touched in a way that um, we liked or we didn't like, and sort of transferring those in relationship to each other um, are some of the concepts that I, I worked with in it. Excellent. And this is being presented <laughs> at the Ottawa Dance Directive this mm -hmm. November. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm going to move away from Crave now, and I want to talk about uh, Porch View Dances, which is a community engagement project that you've founded. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Can you start by just telling us a bit about it from your perspective? Um, Porch View Dances was born in my living room uh, during a staff meeting where we were, you know, we have our weekly staff meetings, and our office is in our home, so we come into the living room to have our meetings, and... Um, we were engaged in the meeting, and then we started talking about budget, which is very important to me, but at that moment I was sort of looking out the window, and I disengaged for a few moments, and I wondered what was going on in the house across the street from me, and I started imagining that this was happening in a dance, and it was spilling out the mouth of the house onto the front porch and onto the lawn, and I, I just couldn't help myself and I turned back around in the meeting and I said porch view dances what if there was you know we were building dances on non-dancers right across the street and we were hiring choreographers and we were bringing them in and collaborating with these non-dancers 
who were part of a household, whether they were a family or just inhabitants in a dwelling, and what would come out of that? And would people be interested in that? Would, would the everyday person be interested in witnessing that? And so, you know, really, like, you, people have a lot of ideas, and that was one of many ideas that we have, and I think that everybody latched onto it as we continued our conversation and before we knew it we were applying for grants and you know really in my world it's the ones that you get the grants for that you continue keeping alive or investigating and the ones that you don't sort of live somewhere in the mind and hopefully eventually come out when they're strong enough and the time is ripe. So just to veer away for a second we just for example applied for some funding for projects that have been incubating for 10 years in our minds that we'd never brought out yet. So that's sort of just the creative Ties mind. Ties in with the, with the budget conversation <laughs> yeah, where we started. the budget conversation. But Portview Dances um, uh, was afforded some funding, and so then Alan and I continued developing the concept and... Um, built it so that there were, the first year in 2012, there were five houses and of non-dancers in one community so that the audience could flow from one to the next to the next and not have to you know, travel the city to do it. And within uh, the one an hour and 15 minutes, there were five 10-minute pieces built and there were some vignettes. And the vignettes, we brought in professional dancers to create those vignettes between some of the houses so that the audience would happen upon these things. Like there was, uh, in the first year, we had uh, Diana Rose um, and Tina Fuchel create these beautiful bike duets. And it was like they were having, they had these bike accidents and the audience would come across them and find them in alleys and streets in different ways. And then at the end, we always have a flock landing. And that is where the, at the end of the trail, the whole audience can engage in participatory art, which is the flock landing. Which, which is, is a follow the leader yeah. sort of dance. It's the concept of flocking, and I've just I flushed it out um, where the leaders um, have a certain kind of control, and there's a lot of, um, I'll say do's and don'ts, but things that allow a very large audience to be completely engaged in a safe environment. And for me, the work of the dance artists that are leading this is in um, is in creating a a stupendously fabulous experience for the audience that's dancing inside of their leadership. Can you identify the outcome of, of these sorts of events, of porch view dances, in terms of engaging community and what happens after the event is over? Well, um, for porch view dances, uh, for example, some people have told us that they are either moving into our neighborhood or staying in that neighborhood because of this annual event that allows them to feel like they are part of it as an audience member, as an active engager in uh, taking part in the final uh, flock landing or witnessing the houses or being participants themselves. So um, one is 
the vibrancy that it brings to a community, um, the ownership that it gives to people who are non-dancers to bridge that gap between the performer and the real people. I like to use this slogan that we're using in all of our community engagement um, practice right now, which is um, real people dancing in real spaces. It transformed a little bit over the last few years, but it's real people dancing in real spaces, and it's like everyday people dancing. Why not? We have it in us. It's time to take ownership of that. And important to me is being led by really strong um, dance artists who are commissioned to propel the experience forward or training dance artists to understand the difference because there is one between engaging people in community dance art and professional dance art. These people don't walk in knowing studio etiquette or um, rehearsal strategies or like they have their own crazy schedules and they have kids and they have parents and they have um, all kinds of other things that don't, uh, it's not their focus, you know, their focus is not that. So um, it takes a certain kind of understanding to really engage with everyday people from a professional level without expectations of what it's going to be like because it is always different and it takes a lot of time to um, all of our staff at Keisha to Dance spend a lot of hours uh, engaging with each participant and bringing them into the fold and making sure that they're comfortable and having a great experience whereas when you bring dancers in the studio they've got all that under their belt they get it, they know it, they, you know, um, it's still about their experience too, but it's different. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Two worlds. It is two worlds, and I, I love them both. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, I'm hoping I can take advantage of your experience to ask the next couple questions. Sure. Uh, the first <laughs> being, um, so you, you've been performing for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have words of wisdom in terms of uh, habits or, or what do you do to make sure that you can continue to have a long life as a performer? Um, one of them is never saying no to yourself, but being able to say no to others. <laughs> um, uh, do you mean physically? Like there's physically, emotionally, um, intellectually, like stimulating your curiosity all the time. Mm, that's great. But um, never feeling like you are not valid because you're not doing what someone else is doing. So if I would have done that, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, I was not, I don't think I was, um, when I started at York University, I got in because of natural instincts for moving. I didn't have any technique yet. But um, I don't think anyone at York thought that I would continue. Um, If I would have also allowed myself to imagine that or be influenced by that, if that's what I had felt in the air, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So um, I think if you, you know, 
if you believe in something, you just keep digging in, but not to try and become someone else. That's great. That that may have covered my second question, but maybe not. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask if there is something that you believed at the beginning of your career that you have since stopped believing. Oh. Um, well, uh, well, this might not answer your question, but... Um, well, at the beginning of my career or before I had a career? Could Maybe be before. When I started training at York, I actually went to York for dance therapy. And I was actually encouraged to go into performing um, and then got swooped into that. Um, but when I would go at that time in Toronto down to Harbourfront and watch companies that were either our own Toronto-grown or coming in from, excuse me, from out of town... Um, I would watch them on the stage, and this was long before there was site-specific and all kinds of other work, and I would be so blown away by every single show, and I would look at these beautiful dancers, and I would think, that is so friggin' miles away from me. I will never, never, never in a million years become a professional dancer, ever, because I just... I just thought we were like light years away, me and whoever I'm watching on stage. And um, that was when I was a student at York. Um, and well, now I really, you know, I really understand that it's not that that I needed to be. It's that, and you're right, it doesn't answer the first question, did answer the second. It's me that I needed to be and become, and who is the person on stage now. And so that growth curve happened over a long period of time. So if I could offer any advice to someone young is just go fucking for it. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. And I see people doing that all the time. And um, it really doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. I, I liked what you said earlier about uh, don't say no to yourself. Yeah. Don't say no to yourself. Yeah, and if that's not that, you know, if you're if you're trying something like even a mode of training, then allow yourself to be led to the kind of training that feels right for you. Mm -hmm. It does not have to be something that's not right for you. Wonderful. <laughs> those, I mean, those sound like last words to me. But if you have anything else you'd like to add, you're more than welcome to. Mm, no, I mean, I'm sure there's a million things, but um, yeah. It's like it's a it's a blessed life to be dancing, you know. So I just feel really lucky. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Karen Keja, who is from Keja de Dance. Uh, she will be presenting her work Crave at the Ottawa Dance Directive this November and also teaching a workshop yeah, on partnering. On Friday. Yeah. There we go. With Alan. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Dirty Feet. I'm Alison Burns with a few thank yous. First to Paula Flalo and the No More Radio Network. Also to Mainline Theatre and Montreal Improv Theatre. And to all present and past team members who can be found on our website, dirtyfeetpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet. Thank you for listening. Until next time.